0: Welcome to Cringe Benefits, the podcast that's all about your favorite things from childhood and your grown up reservations about them. I'm your host, Abby Wilde, and with me today is Melissa Slaughter. Melissa is a podcast producer with Pineapple Street Studios, where she works on shows like the Netflix podcast Behind the Scenes, HBO's I'll Be Gone in the Dark and Unhappy Hour with Matt Belisai. She produces an indie podcast called We Are Not All Ninjas about Asian Americans in Hollywood films. She lives in New York, where you can often find her cooking, crafting, or watching Doctor Who. Hi, Melissa. How are you today?
1: I'm good. Hi, Abby. That was a lovely (laughs) intro.
0: Thank you. I I love that read. Listen, my cold reading skills have Never been contested. If there is one, if there is one slightly marketable skill I have, it is cold reading bits of text. Yes. 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 So, uh, Melissa, I I could tell people what we're going to talk about today, but I'm just going to dive right in and ask you, how old were you the first time you saw The Princess Bride?
1: Yes. Um. I actually think I was in middle school. I was probably older than most people are when they start watching it. But I started watching it because I was really into watching VH1 uh, between the ages of like 10 and 13. That's all oh, I God, watched.
0: M- mood. I think like we all did. Like I hours of watching and rewatching. Behind I the music. the 80s. Yes. And behind the music. Behind the music. I love the 80s. And like I miss pop-up video with a burning passion.
1: But they used to show movies on VH1 all the time. So like I've seen the... Like uh, the censored version of Not Dream Girls, what's it called? Showgirls. Oh God! Like, yeah, I've seen it probably like four times. The one where they like painted on bras as people are moving.
0: Yes. Oh God. Oh, that was so weird. And I remember like when we were twelve or thirteen, we thought, "Oh, this is so edgy and real and gritty." That's another movie that I need to rewatch as an adult, possibly whilst inebriated. Yes. Yes.
1: So <laughs> they showed
0: they showed Princess Bride then.
1: And they would show Princess Bride. And I started just like watching bits and pieces of it. And then as time went on, I was able to watch like the whole thing in one stretch. And so, and then as an adult, obviously, like I went to college and like my friends would watch it as like a fun thing to do. And now I've rewatched it on streaming. And like, it's a movie I've seen literally dozens of times. I've read the book dozens of times. And -hmm. it's one of my absolute favorites. I think so much about it is brilliant. Did you... Did you read the book? Were you still a teenager
0: when you met the book as well? Or or was that much later?
1: I actually don't remember. I might have been in college. I distinctly remember picking it up from the library. But I just don't know which library that was. The big thing for me about the book is that when I was graduating college, I was staying at my This is like a little convoluted. I was staying at my boyfriend's place constantly because my apartment had been flooded. So I had like nowhere to live. And I just like would wake up at like 7 a.m. in like a full blown panic (laughs) because I was like, I have to go into the world. And he, of course, would be asleep and it'd be like a Wednesday. And I'm like, well, if I get up, he's going to wake up. So I would just like read his copy of Princess Bride because it was the only thing close enough that I could read. So I wound up reading it like seven or eight times over the course of the summer to like deal with my panic.
0: Oh my God. That's amazing.
1: Yeah. So that's like, and I had read it a couple of, probably actually I'd only read it once prior to that. But from that moment on, I had like the whole book memorized and I've read it, I think twice since then.
0: Oh, that's amazing. I, I I read it. I think I, I first found out it was a book because we were on a camping trip with family friends when I was like nine. Uh, and one of the kids had brought a copy and uh in, in in a way that's totally on brand for me, we were on a camping trip and I spent most of the time in the tent reading.
1: Honestly, good for you. The outdoors <laughs> yeah, are overrated.
0: No. Listen, there are no bugs in the books. There's no like pine sap in the books. You can't burn yourself in a campfire in a book. It was great. Like I I found it there and I read part of it. And then I found it in the sixth grade in the school library and devoured it. And then I had my own copy, which I lent to a cute boy when I was like 18, and he gave it back and he'd written a note to me on the inside cover, which meant he was no longer a cute boy because you don't write in someone else's books. But what was the note? I don't, it was, it was not, listen. It was not uh, cute
1: enough to overcome the fact that he wrote exactly, in your book.
0: Exactly. Like, I know he meant well, and this would have been charming if he was the right boy writing the right note at the right time, but it was not those three things. And. No this is when a post-it
1: would have been acceptable
0: this is when a post-it is perfectly acceptable or like if you write a girl a letter and slide it inside of the book then that's great and she can keep it in the book forever but you haven't like boys just think before you vandalize another woman's property as a romantic gesture so many
1: stories about so many
0: stories but like I mean, so I, you were saying a minute ago that uh, that a lot of other people met this movie much younger. So the movie came out in 87, and I cannot remember the first time that I saw it, but I can remember, like, making a friend on the first day of first grade, which was the first time I went to school outside the house, and quoting Princess Bride with each other. Like, that's how... Yeah, no, seriously. I think her name was Sarah Newmeyer and uh we were quoting man, we, we were quoting the Inigo Montoya uh, Montoya Wesley Sword Fight at each other. Like that's oh. that is how in my bones and I think in the bones of a lot of our generation frankly, this movie this this movie is because it's yes. just so um it's 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 really kind of the template of a film for the whole family. Because if you're a kid, you watch it and you're just into the sword fighting and the fairy tale. And if you're an adult and you watch it, then you're into the more grown up humor. And if you're a parent and you watch it, then you laugh uproariously at everything Fred Savage does because he's such an obnoxious child brat in the yes. sweetest way. Um, I I want to talk a little bit about um, Princess Bride as kind of a, a, a cultural icon as well, because yeah. something that, something I didn't know until probably honestly watching a some documentary on VH1 or something similar like some making of feature, is that Princess Bride was kind of the um one of the one of the forerunners of like movies becoming big in home video because it wasn't yes. a critical it wasn't a critical success in no. in theaters right?
1: Correct. It was not like a big box office hit. It's what it they it's what's called a sleeper hit where it took something like a decade for it to do exceedingly well a big i've also watched all these documentaries so again i come here like i love this product i've seen everything about it i'm so good to talk about what's problematic <laughs> in it um yeah it, they didn't know how to market it so they kind of like put it out in a couple of theaters and we're like it's a kid's movie with adventures but like that never really took off and then It became a VHS hit and like, you know, do you remember when you would like go to Blockbuster as a kid and you would just like go down the rows and there were movies that you always got and there were movies that you were like, one day I'm going to get this. And I'm sure it was one of those for many people. And that's how it kind of grew into this huge hit. And then now yeah, there's you, me, most of our generation are kids who like grew up with this movie in some way and then. It wasn't like a, like, you have to see this movie. It was like a, you grew up and suddenly you realized everybody else watched this movie and loved this movie. Yes.
0: It's like, it's one of those kind of cultural touchstones where when I meet someone who has never seen it, or like even, even more outlandish, has no idea what it is, I kind of, I mean... I, I've worked hard to not like shame people for not having seen the things that I see. But it's, it's so a, difficult. <laughs> it's so difficult not to, but it's also it's just baffling. It's like, how did you live this long and not have seen this? It's kind of like, how have you lived this long and never had ice cream? Just it's it's a it's a thing we all know and yes. do and refer to. And I should be able to say, hello, my name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. to die. Prepare, Prepare to die. To die. At any time, in any context, and have someone know what I'm referring to. Surely. Absolutely.
1: Um, but it was never something that I felt like kids in my school were like, Have you seen it? You have to watch this movie. Or like being 10 no. years old and like watching it out of sleepover. It was just something that like everyone watched either with their family or individually or from the blockbuster when there were blockbusters. We are really aging ourselves with the blockbuster no, 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 situation.
0: No. Movie rental, man, kids these days don't understand the ritual of movie rental.
1: No, uh, just like walking down the aisles. And truly, there were some movies where when I was like 10, I'd be like, one day I'm going to get this movie because the cover is so interesting, but it's PG-13 and my mom's not going to let me watch it. And one of those movies, by the way, was a movie called Blow Dry starring Alan Rickman and um, Natasha Richardson. Oh
0: my God, I've never even heard of this one. I think
1: it's called Blow Dry, but it's incredible. It's all about a hairstyle competition. <laughs> it's amazing. Um, and then the Melissa, other thing- We have to watch it. Has it has now
0: become, yes, it's become my mission in life to find this movie. And you and I will watch it together whilst eating expensive candy or, you know, together virtually. And we will have all of the feelings. Yes,
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there was a lot of British movies. That's how I wound up watching Brass Doff. That's There was just like a lot of- Billy Elliot was one that we rented from the store- yeah, very, yeah. I also rented share every week. <laughs> I rented shares Las Vegas concert.
0: <laughs> see what I love about this is this says so much about you, but it also says a lot about your family because, like, when we were kids, you you didn't only like the rich kids had their own VCRs and their own screens and their uh, own yes. like to watch things. Yeah. privately like when we were com- coming up there had to be some sort of family agreement on what you rented because everyone in the house was going to be subjected to it however many times you watched in fact like i put my brothers through hell because in the fourth grade there was a period where i rented muppet treasure island repeatedly and watched it four times a day why didn't
1: you just own it we owned I
0: don't No, i don't know why because i don't that have my own money I didn't have my own money. Oh, I own it now. I have it on DVD. Rest Same. assured, I'm living my Same. best life. Yeah, 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 yeah. But like I didn't have Very my important. own money. My mother could have bought it for me at some point. I don't know why. I don't know why it never I think honestly part of the reason we never bought it is because if we'd bought it, then I would still watch it four times a day Cause forever. Because it's a great movie. It's, I a in great love movie. With Jim. it's flawless. Jim, Jim, Jimmy, Jim Jim Jim, 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 Jim. But like, so that's kind of Part of the justification for why I think Princess Bride became such a sleeper hit is because it is something that, like, you could go to Blockbuster and rent and your mother, like, it had something for the whole family. Your mother was okay with it. Your dad was okay with it. Your brothers were okay with it. And you were okay with it. And everybody could agree on it.
1: But at the time that it came out in theaters, that genre did not exist. Like, now that exists with, like, Pixar films and, like, Inside Out and things like that. Totally. But... But that definitely was not a thing in, what do you say, 1987 when this was released? 87,
0: which, speaking of which, was kind of baffling to me to figure out, because I have a very, like, we watched uh, the first Terminator movie last night, and that's a movie that is so impossibly 80s. Like, you don't, you will never mistake that movie for having been made at any other time. And the way Princess Bride is made and shot, it... Mm -hmm you know the film stock looks a little dated now and certainly the video games that Fred Savage has to play with are pretty dated now but for the most part for the main like story i i thought it was i honestly thought it was 95 like i yeah. did not i i would not have pinned it as an 80s movie if i didn't know
1: same but if you had told me it had come out in like 1983 i would be like that that tracks too like
0: yeah I, I would have been a little bit more impressed. I would have been like, wow, that was incredibly ahead of its time. Well done. So I guess that brings me to my next question, which is, do you remember when you started to track that all was not well in uh, Florin and Gilder?
1: <laughs> um. Well, I can say that part of it started when I started reading the book in college, because the book, I mean, like the whole thing is a satire And for people who haven't read the book, like, definitely read it. It's so much fun. But there are parts of the book that are incredibly cringy that then make their way to the movie. One of them that is irrelevant is, like, there's this really cool history of the um, S. Morgenstern. And, like, it's all fake. And it's all, like, written by William Goldman. But there are parts where he talks about, like, his wife really disparagingly and his, like, fat, useless son. I was like, ooh, that's that makes me feel uncomfortable, sir. And knowing like it's not his real family, but still.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. For for people who only know the movie and haven't read the book, the book uh, is written by William Goldman, but it's written uh, as a book within a book. The s- sort of the, the kind of m- framing device meta story is that William Goldman had this favorite book when he was a kid called The Princess Bride, written by a guy called S. Morgenstern. And when he finds it as an adult, he realizes that his the version his grandfather told him as a kid was heavily edited and the actual book is really long and boring. So the version William Goldman is presenting is an edit of S. Morgan Stern's book edited to be entertaining. And side note. Uh, something else that i've noticed amongst people who have read the book that's really common is we all went through a phase where we tried to find the s morgan stern version and like did not realize that it was made up like if you read yes. the if you read the book there was a there was a period of time however brief however long where you did not understand that it was all fictional
1: yes yes um i definitely had a couple of those moments but by the time i had found the book the internet was like in the throes of the early days so like it was pretty easy to google it google might not have existed it might have been an ask jeeves situation but there was a search engine you could look up
0: even alta vista could tell you that this was a fictional book
1: yes yes um Um, oh man but yeah there's part of that conceit is him talking about his family and by the way every iteration of that book that comes out if it's the first an- or the um, 10th anniversary of the 15th, the 20th, whatever it is, he would add updates. So throughout some of those, there are moments where he's just like talking about his son. Like you can read about his son growing up and like he hates his, his son. And it's just like, it felt really gross. To- even if you knew it was fake. Um, and then in the actual book, Princess Buttercup, is a satire of the damsel in distress. But what he does is he just presents her as somebody who was consistently so stupid and so dumb. And it's not it, great because she's the only woman in the book other than, oh, God. yeah, she's really the only woman in the book. Yeah. And, and, and not only is she
0: um, represented as stupid, like he blatantly comes out and tells you, in third-person narration, she was incredibly beautiful. And as beautiful as she was, that's how stupid she was.
1: Yes. And it's brought up so consistently throughout the book. It's always, she's incredibly beautiful and incredibly dumb. And when that's the only woman in the book and you're reading it as a young woman, it can be a little disheartening. And at that point, I had seen the movie enough to know that like they didn't do that exact version in the movie, but it still doesn't help within the movie that like she's incredibly beautiful like Robert Wright is incredible I, I felt truly no one with like the problems of this it really is just like this is of the time situation Robert Wright great in the movie incredibly beautiful but her character is just useless her character doesn't do anything her character can't do anything her like the the best thing her character does is like consider killing herself like that's the only agency she uses (laughs) because she yeah uh, other than that well that in the moment was she's like if you promise not to hurt him i'll marry you and it's like why would you do that
0: but so so we've talked a little bit about the sexism in princess bride which about which there is always more to say um but the other big thing that strikes me about it is the way Inigo Montoya is used and
1: referred to. My big, we might have differing thoughts on this then. Cause my big thing about Enigo Montoya, I obviously love Mandy Patinkin with all my heart. I'm a huge Broadway nerd. I love Sunday in the park with George. It's my favorite show. Like I feel a very close affinity to Mandy and I feel a close affinity to Mandy in this role. So when I say this, please listeners don't get mad. Mandy has no business being in that role. He is not Spanish. It is definitely brown face. His accent is awful. And again, I'm sure this is all a product of the time where like somebody like Mandy, who is very Jewish looking, like very like the dark hair, quote unquote, swarthy is probably what was used to describe him in that in the 80s. I'm sure many men of that ilk were playing a lot of roles they shouldn't have been playing or playing roles that didn't represent who they were because that's just of the time. That being said, as an adult, I spend a lot of my time uh, outside of work talking about yellow face and brown face and how uh, people of color are constantly losing roles to Scarlett Johansson or Tilda Swinton. A lot to Tilda Swinton. We've lost like three at this point. It's really wild. Why is she doing Parasite? Um, I don't
0: I don't know. Like, God bless Tilda. She's an immaculate queen of power and strength. And also, she should stick to playing white women.
1: Yeah, I won't lie. I, after reading the conversation between her and Margaret Cho, she is not immaculate in my mind. She is a truly just a wealthy white woman. Um, oh, you need to send that to me because I don't think I've read that. I will. Um, yeah. So there's this. Anyway, uh, because I spend this is my other big problem with the movie because I spend a lot of my time thinking about casting, talking about casting, talking about representation. It is uncomfortable to know that one of my all time favorite things is something that uh, propels that idea that a white man can play brown face. And like,
0: it also kind of propels the idea that, um, and, and this is, this isn't necessarily specific to princess bride. This is kind of in the larger meta conversation, a defense that tends to come up when, uh, we have conversations or critiques about casting white actors and non-white roles or in casting cis actors and non-cis roles, the, the, defenses. Halle Berry. Right. She stepped down. She did. Good for her. Well done. Within 24
1: hours. Good for her.
0: Uh, but the, the, the conversation that, uh, sort of, um, heteronormative or, or, uh, white casting apologists come up with is, well, it shouldn't be about representation. It should be about who's best for the role. And what you're actually saying is that you believe I'm a throw my white- microphone. <laughs> You believe that a white person is better at playing a person of color than a person of color which is, can, which cannot be true or that a cis person is better at play at playing a trans person than a trans person which also cannot be true. And like, the
1: other part of it is that you don't acknowledge that there's a whole system in place that keeps people of color that keeps trans people that keeps queer, like keeps marginalized groups out of the acting world and that keeps them uh, in places where they cannot access the same amount of training that, say, a cishet white actor can.
0: Yeah. And to a similar extent, we have to talk a little bit about Wallace Shawn as Vicini, who in the book, uh, <laughs> Vicini's Sicilian yes, the heritage. the Sicilian. <laughs> the Sicilian, the dark, swarthy Sicilian, uh, as he's described multiple times in the book. And it's harped on repeatedly, not just that he is Sicilian and visibly Sicilian and so Sicilian, but uh the the there are stereotypes that are named about how Sicilians are conniving yes. Sicilians are untrustworthy Wallace Shawn even has the line never go in against a Sicilian when, when death, death is, on, is the, the line. on the line um and uh to his credit like Wallace Shawn uh, I've I've re- I've read in my reading about this movie that he as I understand it, he did not believe he was right for this role, both because he does not appear, uh, appear Sicilian in the least, but also he was quoted as like, he did not think he knew how to make it funny. And the day that they filmed the battle of wits poisoning scene, yes. he thought he thought he would be fired because he thought he did awful.
1: No, because I don't blame any of the actors for these things. Like, I don't think they should have stepped down again. Like, this is of that time. I am not going to blame them for things that happened. 30 years ago he's so good in that scene he's so good it's iconic
0: it's it is truly I- iconic. it's iconic and just the power and rage I'm of Wallace John war with Asia. <laughs> but only slightly less well known like the, <laughs> listen the, the performances in this movie are so immaculate and so perfect and I'm also I am I'm, I'm I tend to be less inclined to blame actors for uh,
1: being miscast than I am to blame the producers, because as an actor... With the exception of Tilda Swinton, Scarlett Johansson, and Emma Stone, all three who are women who... And Matt Damon, all four who are people who have bukus of monies and bukus of roles. Yeah, I mean,
0: the conversation changes uh, proportionate uh, pr- proportionate to how much money and power and establishment in your career yes. you have. But at the same time, it's I, I think the the pressure is much more on the filmmakers to say these are the people we will see for this role
1: rather than the casting directors to bring those people in because so often casting directors say like oh we can't find those people like crazy rich asians is a great example like the the team really worked to find the correct people Mm -hmm. and casting directors were like oh we just we just can't find those people or asians aren't expressive which was a very famous phrase that uh nancy huynh did you not hear about this i'm very addicted to asian-american film in theater and Twitter. So like, this was on my radar. There was a book that was published by a casting director named Nancy Nguyen. And I might be mispronouncing her last name. I'm sorry. Uh, but she had done a bunch of interviews and like was talking about her experiences in this book. And one of the big takeaways was that a casting director told her like, well, Asians just aren't that expressive,
0: which is not oh, fucking true. Not oh, true. Oh, man. Okay. Oh, that's... Yeah yeah the structures of the 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 structures of Hollywood that are built to uh enfranchise white men and then white women and then like and and then I I I am not the person who can really differentiate the hierarchy but that it is like specifically after that but it does not enfranchise it enfranchises people of color last correct Um, and uh that all needs to be rebuilt and uh that is a whole other long conversation to have all of which is to say that if princess bride were being made today and if, if it a were being glorious made...
1: spanish man would be playing an Negro montoria oh god
0: oh it would be it would be um oh what's his face who was in rogue Antonio... one
1: <gasps> diego luna yes it would be david luna i love diego luna
0: diego luna it would be diego diego
1: D- yes, Luna is beautiful. I love him. If it were being made today, I love Rogue One because of D- partially because of him. That's a great. Movie. I mean, that's another he's thing. He's so
0: marvelous, and he no like did you that one. Yeah, Diego Luna would be playing an Ego Montoya. And like he he said he he was quoted after Rogue One uh in some interview talking about how he took his father to see it, and his father was so happy to see someone with an accent, accent playing a his mainstream accent. his accent playing a mainstream hero. Diego Luna would be doing an ego montoya today. Um I don't know who like I feel like I, I feel like our Italian-American actors, our, our main heavy hitters, like Robert De Niro and Al Pacino, are all too old for uh, Vicini.
1: Yes. Yes. You, you know who it would be?
0: Who would it be? Joey
1: Sasso from The Circle.
0: <laughs> it would be Joey Sasso from The Circle. You're 100% <laughs> you correct. The Circle,
1: please watch it. It's so great. It's oh, such God. a weird social experiment. And he's an actor, which I found to be so frustrating in the end. Um, no, no, no. I'm sure there's other, like, very fantastic. It would be, like, Michael Imperioli or, like, uh, Michael Deegan or something like that. Michael Deegan's not Jewish, but, or, sorry, is Jewish, not Italian, but he would be great in a role like that. Like, there's plenty of people (laughs) who can step into that role who are actually Italian or Sicilian or at least Mediterranean.
0: And... So that movie it, it we also haven't touched on like both both within the book but also within the movie outside of uh, what I initially wanted to bring up when I brought up Inigo Montoya is not just the 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 casting disparity of Mandy Patinkin, but also the references to Spaniards as being uh, inherently untrustworthy. He is and always referred yes. yes, he's always referred to as the Spaniard. and yes. Spaniards are untrustworthy and drunk in this movie. yes, uh, all the time and uh yeah, it doesn't do a lot to further the cause and for, like uh,
1: hot-blooded that is another like hot-blooded and very impetuous. yeah there's a very this uh the satire of this story largely plays upon stereotype it really does and that's yeah. kind of which it, is a thing that truly does not age
0: well it doesn't and it's stereotypes are played on in movies because they're kind of a shorthand where you don't have to do the work yes. of a, You don't have to do the work of establishing a world for the audience to climb into because you're playing on assumptions, on cultural assumptions that they're going to carry in with them. And you can just tap into those and everyone will know what kind of story they're in. Uh, but like, if you're a kid and you're watching Princess Bride and you don't have those stereotypes yet, watching Princess Bride is how you learn that sicilians are untrustworthy and conniving yes and
1: spaniards, and spaniards are, are drunk and are blonde drunk. women are stupid Mm-hmm. and blonde men are the only trustworthy people who i the more i think about what i watched as a child the more i'm like maybe that is why i really do like blonde men with blue eyes i've dated up almost exclusively <laughs>
0: i mean listen uh if you're looking for an argument about whether or not carrie elwes in princess bride is the hottest man ever to it's have haunted beautiful you are not gonna find an argument from me he is so he's gorgeous so good looking. it's unfair it is that should shot be shot
1: of him in the beginning with his hair and he says as you wish and his lips are so and, bl- he's so good looking.
0: The wind blowing and also like the kind of the way he transitions from like sort of sort of innocent farm, boy, farm bow boy hunk to swarthy mustachioed pirate and they are like he's just, a
1: pirate
0: oh god get you a man who can do both that yes. is so formative for so many uh so many yes. men loving people of our generation came up on carrie elwes and he awakened things within yes.
1: us yes and Again, we do not blame actors for their their work. <laughs> we do not blame actors for their work. We do not work. blame. Act- Carrie for being beautiful. Never. Carrie Elwes, if British. you're listening,
0: Carrie Elwes, if you're listening, it is not your fault that you are we gorgeous. Love you. <laughs> I forgive you for your impossible gorgeousness. Uh if you've never seen Princess Bride before, one, why are you listening to this? But two, uh one of the plot elements is that uh Buttercup believes that Wesley is dead. She becomes engaged to the prince. The prince is evil. One day, she is kidnapped by a swarthy, uh, not swarthy, by a man in black with a mask, who she believes to be the Dread Pirate Roberts. And uh, this man is later revealed to be Wesley in disguise. Mm-hmm. However, while Wesley is in disguise as the Dread Pirate Roberts, he treats Buttercup like shit.
1: yes. Yeah, it's
0: totally fine, right? Because she's stupid. <laughs> it's totally fine because she's stupid. And like you can He almost I, hits
1: her in the movie. He almost
0: he he almost hits her and then he says he says, where I come from, there are penalties when a woman lies. So he's like saying, It's okay. It would have been mm-hmm. okay if I'd hit if I'd hit you. Mm-hmm. And you can, however you want, like make the argument and the way it's kind of justified in the film is like, well, he thinks that she forgot about him he thinks that she like that she just gave up on him and forgot about him and fell in love with prince humperdinck they have
1: true love
0: and he's deeply hurt and because he's deeply hurt he has to test her and see how true her love is which is why they have like
1: gross gross i hate that justification no
0: no there is actually no justification for a man to gaslight a woman and uh gaslight a woman into thinking that her life is in danger and repeatedly insulting her to get her to defend her love for you and yet i i am a child of my upbringing i still fucking love those scenes with dread pirate wesley
1: and yet, would I also roll down a hill to land on top of him and make out with his face? Yes, every day,
0: every day, yes. any day. Would I listen? If I were kidnapped tomorrow by a gaslighty, by, by a gaslighty, possibly violent man in black, and he later revealed himself to be circa you 1985, one to be specifically circa 1985, Carrie Elwes, uh, yes. all would be forgiven. All Truly. would be forgiven.
1: Truly, it's- but this
0: is why it's problematic. Is why should... it's problematic there's, there's also
1: yeah it's also fun for us to just like you yeah. know it is a fantasy as well which is the other part that's easy to like walk away and it's easy to be like oh but it's not real but like you said this is like something that people have watched since they were children and like how many opportunities have we seen where we're like but it's okay because he really loves her like yeah it's really just the ability to look at this and like critically think like we know that this is satire outside of this realm this is truly unacceptable and it is borderline it is still unacceptable in this capacity we just have the critical thinking skills to still be able to watch it and enjoy it yeah
0: i I think that's a really important part of examining the work in this way is is remembering that um standards can be different and to a certain extent should be different for things that are not meant to be taken seriously like uh Rob Reiner and William Goldman did not make The Princess Bride as a thesis on how the world should be and how we should speak to each other. They made a story to be enjoyed. Um, And does that mean that everything that is problematic about it should therefore be forgotten and forgiven and never talked about? Absolutely not. Does that mean that the things that are problematic about it mean that it's invalid and should never be watched? Absolutely not. It is like it is annoyingly, but necessarily somewhere in the middle.
1: Yeah. So if you're I mean, like, I am excited to one day have a child and introduce them to this movie, at which point we will also have a conversation about how this movie is a parody of all those other fantasy stories that I probably told you in bed, like a Cinderella or a Snow White or a Sleeping Beauty. Like, this is... Not something that is meant to be taken seriously, this is not something that is, I mean it, with the the theme of like love conquers all it wins the day, like yes, take that seriously, but the other smaller nuances are can be things that you recognize as something within the genre and of its time, and then you leave it there
0: yeah no no piece of art is engaged with in a void, and like i I think about this as well that actually that that actually raises a really good point is that kind of. I, I think kind of unconsciously the criteria I use when I'm evaluating pieces of work that I now realize are problematic and I have feelings about it, the, the kind of the main criteria is would and how would I show this to my kids? And frequently the answer is yes, I would, but we would have to have the following conversation. Um,
1: One day you and I will talk about Blazing Saddles on this podcast and I will tell you about how we had no conversation in my family about that. I think my mom just went, by the way, that word they keep saying is a bad word and you will never say it. And I was like, cool, (laughs) sounds great. I also don't know any Black people because my town doesn't have very many. So that's its own issue. (laughs) Um, But yeah, Princess Bride, I think also because I watched it when I was a little bit older and I was in middle school and I was, and then like I engaged with it a little bit earlier on than, say, like a seven or eight year old, maybe. Um, I don't know if I had those critical thinking skills as much, but definitely as an adult, I'm able to look back on it and be like, I love this thing so much. But I recognize that, like, satire and parody is a genre that exists and that has its own own like criterias as opposed to like a drama or like an allegory or however like genres work like there are things within that that are i mean within satire like satire arguably would always be problematic because it is commentary on something that is already probably mm-hmm. problematic like fairy tales are also very problematic
0: 100 um, percent.
1: so it's I think just being able to critically look at something I mean but the the other part of this is like you and I are people who make our living in story and Mm -hmm. in critical thinking about these stories I mean like that's a lot of what I do as a podcast producer in the podcast that I work on Um, and we are people who in our spare time love to engage with this I don't know if that's true for people who do not work in story or do not understand narrative or do not think that media is important and storytelling is important. I would love to hear a conversation between somebody. I mean, honestly, between like my dad, who's, um, a mechanic or what does my dad do? My dad is an engineer, like a very fancy engineer for oil companies. It's another thing. Um, (laughs) whatever. (laughs) he's old (laughs) my dad is a true boomer is what i'm trying to say and And you'd love to
0: hear a conversation between like someone from our woke generation and someone from a generation that is yeah from a from another generation who who may not have caught up to this conversation that we're having
1: or even just somebody like I think there are people in older generations who also deal in story, who understand what we're talking about, but then talking to people who are like, well, I don't see what the big deal is. It's just a movie and don't engage with those critical thinking skills. Like, do those kids grow up to then have those feelings of like, oh, well, Wesley did this and clearly it's fine because no one sat them down and said, like, by the way, this is satire. Yeah, I mean,
0: I think there's. I think it's it's possible that we're in a pendulum swing right now, where it's. I it's, think so. Yeah, the conversation, because of the the ease with which uh, different groups are able to express their positions and their points of view, and and uh, the ease with which we're able to expose in uh, inequities in art and inequities in society and inequities in politics, and the way we're able to discuss how those three things interact, um, there is such a boom of the conversation about how. Uh, uh, Art that, art, art that plays on stereotypes reinforces stereotypes negatively and therefore should be used more responsibly. And um, what I'm dancing around is that, I, is that people uh, are not necessarily offended more easily, but they are offended more seriously. And they take their offense... We We give a lot of weight to our offense that we historically didn't. And I'm mm-hmm. also conscious that when I say we... Uh, I'm not including everybody in that because the we is bigger than it used to be because we're listening to more voices. And
1: by the way, the we is not just millennials. (laughs) It is not. Don't worry about that.
0: It is not. Um, My point being that uh, I, I think it's possible a time will come again where we are able to play faster and looser with satire in 40 years than we're able to right now at this moment, but that will only come after we've made room for everybody to say, hey, uh, when you make a joke about how uh, Spaniards are hot-headed and drunk and untrustworthy, you're saying that about real Spanish people, and that's a problem. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I think I agree. I think we've come from a time where for so long, pre-internet times, really, where certain genres certain people certain directors like certain stories were just like mythologized into being like the singular great thing and now we look at back on them and because we've had this idea that like only these like these top 10 films who are all directed by white men and story white men and blah, 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 you know what i mean mm-hmm. um, the canon yeah the canon of like best films are all things that were just like stuffed on our throats and like we were not given the chance to critically look at them. You were only giving the chance to critically laud them. And if you didn't love them, then you clearly had bad taste. That's how I grew up. Mm-hmm. And now we're on the opposite end of that where we swing so far to the other side because we didn't have the opportunity to look at the nuances and now we can only look at the bad things. And somewhere in between, hopefully yes we will land in a place where we can say like actually both sides have points or both sides don't have points or like whatever that is yeah now we should pause for this my boyfriend is making a smoothie yeah and this will catch so we will actually pause for this i love this conversation
0: this is so great hi it's abby are you having fun yet If you are, why not take a minute to rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts? Ratings help Apple connect us with more listeners like you, and more listeners will eventually lead us to cool things like new guests, live shows, and everything else we need to make better episodes for you. Thanks for your help. I appreciate it. And now, back to the show. So I guess that brings me to sort of the the last and kind of ultimate question of this podcast is uh, with all of those problems in mind, can you keep Princess Bride? Is it still in your canon?
1: Yes, it is. I watched it, I think, three weeks ago. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Maybe a month ago. It's still one of my favorite movies. I mean, I still quote like, marriage is what brings <laughs> us together today. I quote that at least once a month. Uh, it's just... I mean, yes, absolutely. I think I can for some of the reasons that I listed previously of like I've engaged with the critical thinking of it. I've thought about um, how the differences between like doing a film in the 80s versus now. Also, the other nice thing, not nice thing, but like the other thing about it is like many of the people involved with that have wound up being like, Perfectly lovely people. Like Rob Reiner is a good dude. Manny Patinkin, though, a very, very much a perfectionist. Um, and I know some people find him to be very callous. Uh, he is overall pretty much a good dude. Right. Um. Same with you were just saying Wallace Shawn. Same with Robert Wright. We love Robert Wright. She should be president
0: <laughs> oh my god can i say after wonder woman came out all i want now is a gritty yes. gritty many years on sequel to princess bride in yes. which buttercup has become the dread pirate roberts that's ah. all i want
1: that'd be so good so good so good i would love <sighs> that that would solve all of the problems i have right now that's not true all of the problems of um Oh no, but but then Andre the Giant wouldn't be there. Andre the Giant. He Andre the Giant, another person who's just like an incredibly wonderful dude. So I think like knowing that the person the the problem that I have is like the context in which it was filmed and like the time in which it was filmed necessitated these certain things. Like I don't even blame William Goldman. Um I think he's also passed as well and like he was a, 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 all, for all intents and purposes also a good dude. I there might be stuff that pops up that I don't know about, but in my like reading of his obituaries, he was a good dude. So, the fact that the personnel involved is not the issue is one reason that I'm able to keep this. It's very hard to watch other things and be like, "Oh, I know for a fact that that guy hits his wife," or like, "I know for a fact that that guy probably molested his not for a fact, but like I, I know the rumors that this person probably molested their child like that's much more difficult to engage in than to engage in like, just the concepts of the era like that makes it a mm-hmm. little bit easier for me. And the fact that most of these people have wound up being like, good people who I don't know if nowadays like you could engage with Mandy Patinkin in this conversation, though I imagine like drunkenly after a couple whiskeys you could. Uh, that's my dream. I don't know if that's real. Engaging in Princess Bride does not
0: uh, does not risk m- f- uh, 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 measurably supporting people that we have found to be problematic in some way. The way that engaging in works of uh, other people who have uh, a- a- about whom problematic revelations have been coming to light lately.
1: Correct, or it's also that the concepts that are an issue. In Princess Bride, are again things that you can look at and say, like, it's a satire. Let's talk about, like, what are the necessities of satire? And there are things that you, c- I also, in my regular life, talk about, including like color violent casting versus color conscious casting. And that kind of engagement means that for me, I can watch Princess Bride, enjoy it, critically understand why it's wrong, and still say Amanda Patinkin is like, has one of the best scenes in the movie. He really does. Oh, like, also Chris, um, oh Chris, God, Guest. Chris Guest, Chris Guest, a fantastic person. Chris Guest and Chris
0: Sarandon. Mm-hmm. Uh, we we didn't even have time AKH. to get into
1: Count and Rugen Jack, and Prince
0: yeah. Prince Humperdinck. Yes, Chris Sarandon, who's also the speaking voice of Jack Skellington. Just yes,
1: you know who's more problematic than him? His ex wife, Susan Sarandon. Um, oh, buddy, who? Yeah, um, yes. So. Like, something
0: that I'm excited to ask you, because I think I know what the answer is going to be, is does uh, engaging critically and thinking about and around the problematic viewpoints in this piece make it harder for you to like it?
1: Um, you know, the thing is, like, I don't think so, only because nobody else really talks to me about it. If you ask anybody else about Princess Bride, nobody tells you, oh, but Manny Patinkin is playing Brownface. You know what I mean? So, like, I actively love the Beatles. I grew up on the Beatles. They're one of my favorite all-time bands. But when at any time, I'm like, I'm a huge Beatles fan. Somebody is like, well, you know, John Lennon hit his wife. And I'm like, great. Well, yes, I did know that because you're the hundredth person to tell me. And that is a different reckoning that I'm having to have with myself of, like, what does that actually mean? But nobody does that with Princess Bride. So nobody holds me accountable to the Princess Bride. So it's a lot easier for me to engage with it. If there's a huge societal reckoning on these are all of the movies that engage in brownface, including Princess Bride. And then I'm constantly shamed for it. Then, yeah, I might have a harder time watching it But because it's truly just like me sitting with me. And it's a lot easier because not because I think people should shame me or should hold me accountable, but it is just because it is a conversation I have with myself and sometimes you, because I think this is not the first time we've talked about this.
0: No, of course not. But that's fascinating, because that wasn't actually the answer I was expecting. I, Because I, you and I, as we've discussed prior to turning the mic on, and as we discuss in some way, almost every time we hang out, like part of how you and I love things is by picking them apart. Like Yes, 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 yes. yes. Like, that's just, the, I, I, I honestly don't know if you and I have ever watched or talked about something that we acknowledged was perfect in every way and could not could not be assaulted in some way uh, with the exception of the unimpeachable beauty of Carrie Elwes's face. Like everything else we have ever discussed, like there's, there's some element that we go, yeah, but this though. Um, And that doesn't make me love the thing any less. It just qualifies the way I engage with it in some way. But like the, you bring up a really fascinating thing that I want to explore further with this podcast with this conversation about how critical engagement um is changed by by publicity or by by awareness like
1: yeah yeah yeah, yeah. there are definitely some things that i engage with like other like guilty pleasures or problematic faves that i'm like i feel bad about watching this because i know that i've had conversations with people about why this thing is bad and I feel guilty for it. And sometimes that's a good thing. And then sometimes that's just a thing that makes me feel guilt and shame because I feel like there's a societal reckoning that I, that in many ways, like, I'm, I don't need to go into what some of these things are, but like, you know, sometimes it's just like, people want to shame you because they want to shame you. It's not the, you know, it's like the people who are like game of Thrones is too much violence and too much rape and I can't watch it. And then they make you feel bad for wanting to watch it. And then you watch it and you're like, oh, there is a lot of rape in this shit. Should I keep watching? And that, like, makes me feel guilty. But at the same time, should I feel guilty? Should I not feel guilty? That's a whole separate conversation I have to have within myself. But with things like Princess Bride, where no one is doing that to me, I am just having that conversation with myself and I sit at peace with myself about what that is. I feel like I can keep engaging with it because I know where I stand and no one is making me feel bad about it. Yeah. Um, on the other end of that, though, to your point about how you and I actively love to just not like tear things down, but we really love to like go hard on things that we really love because that that is just how we engage with it. I, I think that's a good thing. I, I, you and I have a lot of conversations where we just break something down to the most granular pieces because we love the story so much and we love stories in general so much. And for things that I find that you and I don't like, we just say like, that was wholesale trash. And then don't talk about Depend, it because it's done. not worthy of our time. But things that we love and want to talk about, like we will spend days, weeks talking about. Like, I'm sure there are things that we've talked about on and off for years because oh, yeah. we just want to like it's a thing. Love, actually, we love it. We love we it so love much. It. Oh, God. Every year we talk about the problems with it and Every how we love year. it and how bad it can be.
0: Oh, God, I can't wait to finally tackle it. Uh, on this podcast like it just the the way in which I plan to tackle it gets bigger and bigger every time I think about it and I hope it I hope it pans out but the point being yeah love actually is a great example of something that I mean every time every I I watch it every year and every year I notice something else about it that's trash and I still love it and I will still watch it every year Yes, Uh, because I there's there are absolutely absolutely uh pieces of art and pieces of culture that uh due to what we know now about their problems and what we know now about who made them and what we know now about the context in which they exist, uh, are no longer worth my time. And I think arguably no longer worth society's time, but also, uh, we have the capacity to let our nostalgia and our joy exist side by side with our disappointment and our criticism. Uh, and I, I find that so fascinating and cool. Um,
1: so, it also just speaks to the fact that you and I are big fucking nerds. Can I swear on this podcast? Oh, yeah. We are
0: huge nerds. <laughs> huge goddamn nerds. <laughs> huge goddamn granular nerds who yes. like pop up video and IMDb trivia and will yes. discuss everything ad nauseum. And that is part of what makes things great. Yes. Melissa, thank you so much for joining me today. This was so wonderful. Uh, if if listeners want to find more of you and what you do online, where should they go?
1: Oh God, I'm terrible at social media and all of my work is now done through my company. So probably look at the at all ninjas pod handle on Twitter and Instagram. I post about my independent pod about Asian Americans and film. So if you have questions about casting, that's a great starter. Um, and then uh follow pineapple street studios and you'll find a bunch of things that i probably have at some point worked on
0: (laughs) absolutely and you if you haven't already do yourselves a favor and listen to uh melissa's indie podcast we are not all ninjas uh it's wonderful and informative and funny and joyous uh and if you have more to say to me you can find me on twitter or Instagram at Abby Wilde, A B B Y W I L D E. Thank you so much for joining me. We will be back next week with another childhood favorite that's become a grown up regret. I will talk to you soon. Bye. Bye.